0: Now we're going to read from God's Word. Uh, As you probably all know, we have two uh, full worship services each Sunday, different services, morning and evening, and uh, the the gathered worship of God's people is an excellent way to remember the seventh-day rest and an excellent way to devote the Lord's Day to the Lord. Our practice has always been to have one series uh, going through the Old Testament, another series going through the New Testament, and we alternate uh, in the morning doing a book from one of the Testaments, in the evening doing a book from the other. Uh, Having just come through Advent, we're going to move back to the Old Testament in our morning services. So this morning we are back in Genesis, uh, and we are in Genesis chapter 14, and I'm going to read that to us this morning. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eliasar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, shemeber king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth-Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Imim in shavah kiriath and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. And joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elasar, Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains, Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Escol and brother of Anor, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot, and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveth, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Honor, Eschol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. This is the word of the Lord. We live in a time where cynicism and despair feel normal even if you have just, even just a little awareness of the global situation, the cultural situation, even just a little awareness of that tells you that things are unstable, things are uncertain. The future looks dark. And in inst- institutions, in places of authority, we suspect that however long it stood, however pristine it looks, we suspect that there are corruptions, there are abuses behind the doors. People... That just at a personal level, people have less confidence that having a degree of some sort will, will set you up for success. People have less confidence that marrying the right person will give you a stable family. People have reduced expectations that if only the right person or the right party in power, if that were to happen, we just don't expect that that will be what brings wellness to the land. But a Christian, if you are a Christian, a Christian sits in a very different seat. A Christian has this this overriding expectation that whatever is falling down, whatever is going down, whatever is getting you down, God is faithfully fulfilling his commitment. God faithfully, whatever is happening and whatever is not happening, God is faithfully fulfilling his commitment to the believer and to the church. And that's what we see this morning. God faithfully fulfills his commitment. Now we're back in Genesis. We're back in Genesis examining Abram's life. And in this particular chapter, as we've read through it, it it can feel a little bit maybe random, maybe a little disconnected from 2024. The text starts with these nine ancient kings, kings of of city-states. They're regional rulers, and maybe the, the feel is for, it, it's not like worldwide kingdom, like British Empire, but we're talking about a region that you could walk and there are some towns in it and a king rules over the town. maybe like a great Viking empire, maybe, maybe like a feudal lord and, and all of the, the territories immediately surrounding him. But we know almost nothing about these nine men. But in verses 14... And following, we find that one of these nine kings, one of these nine kings, Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, he held power over four more kings, four other kings. And in those days, maybe annually, a king would go out into battle and he would try to secure or subdue other fiefdoms, other city-states. And then the loser king, when these conflicts would happen, the loser king would become a vassal to the victor king. The loser, as a vassal state, would then have to pay annual tribute, pay from the produce of their land, pay money to the victor king. So in this situation, you've got these four vassal kings under Cheddarleomer, and they had remained subject to Cheddarleomer for 12 years, that's in verse four. But after 12 years of that, 12 years of exporting their treasure to another kingdom, they said, we've had enough of it. Or, or maybe they thought, I think we can make a break. And so these four vassal kings, they rebelled. And the next year, King Chedorlaomer and his allies, they make an incursion to reestablish power and control over these rebel kingdoms. And that's the setting. You've got the setting where you've got these, these geopolitical alliances, where you have regional instability. You've got five kings going to battle against four rebel kings. But this is, you're reading this, you're like, okay, what, what, are, what are, this is about Abram, and it's about God's work in Abram's family. And that's, that's really the center of what's going on with all this chaos and all this, this fighting and, 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 and effort to regain clout. And so this is what we see in the rest of the text. We see that God faithfully fulfills his commitment When life crumbles, God faithfully fulfills his commitment when rescue arrives. And God faithfully fulfills his commitment when credit is awarded. When life crumbles, when rescue arrives, and when credit is awarded, God faithfully fulfills his covenant, his commitment. So first of all, let's look at how God faithfully fulfills his commitment when life crumbles, when life is falling down. This is in verses one Through 13. And in this section, you have got the worst case scenario of life crumbling. Recall the previous chapter. Remember chapter 13 of Genesis. In that chapter, Abraham and Lot were enjoying prosperity, they had business success. Their respective enterprises had become so great that they needed to relocate. And Lot takes his business operations and he takes them east. Of the Jordan River, to a lush pastureland near the city of Sodom. That's where Lot is. And so, life should be good. That's how chapter 13 ended. But instead, life crumbles. Catastrophe falls upon Lot, the nephew of Abram. There's there's this regional destabilization. There's war. Verses 5 through 7. The five kings in the east, Chedorlaomer and his allies, they invade the kingdom's that are around the Jordan River, and they come in to put down the rebel kings and to reestablish their control in that region. It would have been like trying to do business today in Ukraine. It would be like trying to live today in Taiwan, but you sense this shadow that's hanging over you. And what happens when, when it breaks loose, when war erupts? What happens when you have to live through the invasion of your home, war in your country, what happens? You become collateral damage. You might not be fighting, but you can still get hurt. Verses 8 through 12, what we see is we've got the four rebel kings. They have the home team advantage. They're fighting on their own turf, but against these five kings of the east, against them, they lose, and they lose badly. It's a disaster. The four rebel kings include King of Sodom the king of Gomorrah that that's where lot had moved his prospering family business they they lose verses 11 through 12 describe the effects of the battle loss the, the battle loss of the king of Sodom the effects on the people including lot it says the five kings of the east took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. And so not only are the rebel kings shattered, the citizens are also snatched from the land. And the five kings of the east, they snatched Lot's people and they snatched Lot's business, his possessions, entirely. This is a near worst case scenario for Lot and for Sodom and for Gomorrah. And remember this. This is not Lot's war. Lot did not start this battle. But Lot's entire life has crumbled because of these men who are jousting with each other. And later, we're told in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, that Lot, this Lot who has has, his business has boomed and now it's busted, Lot is a righteous man. Righteous Lot loses everything. Lot is collateral damage in a conflict of kings. Sometimes, sometimes it's the case that other people, not you, but other people quarrel. You're not part of it, but you get hurt. Sometimes other people do stupid things, but you suffer loss because of it. Maybe your position is eliminated because of turf wars that are going on higher up. Maybe you're just a kid, but your life has flipped upside down because one of your parents is out of control. Maybe the consequences of someone else's stupidity or sin has ruined your life. Maybe you look at your country, and you look at the crazy that is shaping up for 2024, or maybe you're just enmeshed with someone else who's sinking, and you feel yourself being pulled under with that struggler. And this is the question that you come to, especially if you're a believer. Where is God? Where is God in this? How could things get to this point? How could things get so bad? The grand reformed doctrine of God's providence, the doctrine of God's providence tells us with certainty that God is in control. God is in control. Even when the bullets are flying and prisoners have been taken, God is in control. But the scandal, the scandal of the doctrine of God's sovereignty is this. It's the question that the child who is being abused asks later, God, why didn't you stop the abuse? How could you let this happen? I asked you. God is faithfully fulfilling his commitment when life crumbles. But when life crumbles, all you have is his promise, words on a paper. And perhaps that's where some of you are sitting today. Maybe you're being evicted tomorrow. Why didn't God stop it? Maybe you got dumped last month. Why did God even allow that doomed relationship to begin if it was going to end this way? The question, this is the question that you have got to honestly answer before God. Do you believe that God faithfully fulfills his commitment to you, even as your life crumbles? I remember a year in my life where it seemed like everything was simultaneously crumbling and unraveling. In the space of these something like 12 months, I had a a, a a friend who committed suicide. I had another friend who dropped dead of a brain aneurysm. I had a child begin a chronic medical crisis. There was a terrible car wreck. And, and there was that's just some of it. And, and all I could think and say it and pray at that point was, I know, God, I know you are at work. I just don't know what you are working. Now let's move on to verses 14 through 16. And here we see... Rescue has arrived. Verses 14 through 16, rescue has arrived. Who is it here that rescues Lot? Well, it's Abram. Abram comes in and he's he's a, he's the hero. Note this, verse 14. Abram is not one of these kings contending for 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 empire and for power. Abram doesn't go to war, but Abram does rise to rescue his relative. He's moved with familial compassion, and that's why he's willing to take up arms. It's, 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 it's like the, the sentiment in Romans 10, where Paul, longing for his fellow Jews and his, his fellow Israelites, longing that they would be saved. He says, my heart's desire, my earnest prayer for my relatives is that they would be saved. And maybe this is, this is, you have this kind of compassion for your relatives, your son, who who does not believe, your mother, who is unsaved, your brother, your sister, who, who had, up to this point has only rejected the faith, but your, your desire, your burning and, and long-lasting prayer is that they would be saved. And so Abram, moved with familiar compassion for his relatives, rises up to rescue. And, and what you find is this. Abram has... He has a trained paramilitary force. He's got 318 fighters just in his own house. They're trained in tactics. They possess weapons. He he probably has some sort of armory on the property. And and in verse 15, Abram isn't just like a guy who buys stuff and and, and stuff, but he employs clever battle tactics. You, You find in verse 15, he has night fighter skills. He makes this this split-force maneuver, and he pursues these five warlords who have swept the land, these winning warlords, he pursues them. And in verse 16, what you see is Abram has total mission success. The rescue operation is a complete success. Every hostage is rescued alive. All of the assets are recovered. The invaders, they had swept down through the region. They had grabbed everyone and everything. But verse 14, Abram pursues, he routes them to the very northernmost border of the promised land, Dan. Now, we like it. We like it when the story gets to this point. The good guys win. Everyone is safe. Nothing is broken or lost. Now, let's ask that question again. Do you believe that God faithfully fulfills his commitment? Do you believe that God faithfully fulfills his commitment when rescue has arrived? Oh, yeah. When rescue arrives, yes, we certainly believe it. Of course, God has faithfully fulfilled his commitment. But this is the same God. This is the same God that just three verses back, there was no rescue in sight. Everything and everyone had been flushed down the tubes. Do you believe that God faithfully fulfills his commitment when life crumbles? It's much harder. Much harder, right? It's hard to trust God. It's hard to trust God when the devious person is sitting pretty. Psalm 73 is an excellent extended meditation and prayer and song for those of us who are wrestling with this. Psalm 73 is this extended meditation about, you could call it, it, it's it's about bitter cynicism. Let's let's consider just a little bit uh, some of what Psalm seventy three has to say about this situation when life is crumbling, and we find it hard to believe that God faithfully fulfills His commitment. Psalm seventy three verses two and three it speaks to the it's a warning. There's a danger when life is crumbling for the believer. Psalm seventy three verse two. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped for I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's warning. There's a warning there. It's a warning that all of us need to be careful about. When life crumbles, beware of becoming bitter. When life is falling apart, beware of becoming cynical. He, he describes it here as stumbling, as slipping in your faith. Are you are you slipping? Are you becoming bitter about things? Are you, are you becoming cynical? Because life is starting to fall apart. Be careful. Here are a few questions you can ask yourself to see. Well, am I? Life is starting to, 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 to show these, these fracture cracks. Am I starting to become a bitter person, a cynical person? Here are a few questions. First of all, have your challenges, have these challenges Changed your theology? That could be good, but it might not be good. Have your challenges changed your theology? So times are good. The kids are well. The kids are well-behaved. Of course, God is good. Of course, God is in control. Times are bad. Things start to go sour. The kids are running off the rails. Does your theology change when things go wrong? Psalm 73, verse 11 and they, the jaded believer, the believer who's starting to become cynical, says, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? When bitterness, when, when cynicism starts to take root under the surface, this is how your theology changes. You might never admit it, but in your heart, you start thinking and acting like, God doesn't really have a handle on this. God doesn't know all things. God doesn't care about this, about me. Suffering can sow doubts about God's sovereignty. So have have your challenges changed your theology? Secondly, you can ask this. Have your challenges changed your devotion? Have your challenges changed your devotion? Psalm 73, verse 13, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. What he's saying is this. Times are bad now. Things are not going well. All that dedication to God, that was a waste. It was in vain. Walking in the word, walking in the ways of God, it's a waste. He's starting to think that way. Have, have your challenges challenged your devotion? You need to be careful. And, and there's something helpful about suffering. Your response, your response to suffering your response to deep suffering, that can reveal something about you. It can reveal something good. It can reveal something that's not so good. Because what you might find when suffering is prolonged and deep, you might realize that you have served God for what you could get from God. You like him as long as he's useful. It could reveal that. So have your challenges changed your devotion? Thirdly, the third question. Have challenges changed Changed your church attendance? Have have challenges changed your church attendance? Times are, times are good. When things are good, you're in the public worship of the congregation. You're plugged in to the ministries of the church, but then times are bad. We don't see you so much. In Psalm 73, verse 16, he says, When I pondered to understand this, this understand God letting life crumble for me, when I ponder to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. What it's saying is this, when life crumbles, you may lose sight of God until you come to church. Because at church, we have the word, we have Worship. We have the works of the saints. We have the community prayers. We have the sacraments. Those practices of the community of faith, those things have a way of of rooting your perspective, of clearing your vision. All of us, all of us need corporate worship. This, we need corporate worship all the time. Are you miserable? Are you miserable? Get to church. Be miserable in church. That's where God will put your head right. In the community that's facing God, something can happen there and he can help you see and to believe and to remain committed to him. So now we come to our last point. Our last point, we see that God faithfully fulfills his commitment when credit is awarded, when the credit is rewarded. This is in verses 17 through 24. In this part of the narrative, it's, it's, a little, it's, a, it, it's something that would work well visually. In this part of the narrative, we've got this mysterious dealing with Abram and two kings. In verse 17, there's the king of Sodom. Verse 18, there's the king of Salem. Verse 17, the king of Sodom. He is the loser king. He is the king that he was Lot's king, and he lost, and he ran away, hiding in the mountains. So you've got the king of Sodom in front of Abram. And then verse 18, you've got the king of Salem. He's the 10th king. The king of Salem, Melchizedek, he was not part of these five against four kings. He wasn't part of the battle of nine kings. Now, he's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. And Salem is likely Jerusalem. And that's highly rich in significance. But note this about the king of Salem, about Melchizedek, king of Salem, in verses 18 through 20. Just a couple of things that are right on the surface here. First of all, Melchizedek, he is a mystery king. No one knows where he comes from. No one knows his family. He's just this mystery king. But, but we know this. He's a fellow worshiper of God Most High. He's a fellow worshiper with Abram. He is a spiritual kinsman with Abram. You also learn this about Melchizedek. Melchizedek holds two offices. He's king and he's priest. He's priest to God most high. That's a little odd. Like, where did this come from? I mean, we don't even have Moses yet. Who appointed him? How did he get access and instructions about how to be priest to God most high? I mean, he's both. He's king and priest. But also note this about Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes to Abram in friendship. He comes to Abram, it says, with a feast, a royal fellowship over food. He comes. He, it says he brought out bread and wine. He comes also with words. And so In some ways, he's like a prophet. Melchizedek brings to Abram blessing and interpretation of the victory. He blesses Abram, verses 19 and 20, words of blessing, and in those words of blessings, he interprets the victory, the rescue success. Now, what's going on here? This, this scene, Abram, these two kings, what do we see? Well, first of all, we see this Melchizedek awards credit for Abram's rescue operation. Melchizedek awards credit to God. Verse 20, Genesis 14, 20. Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, when he does it, he's giving credit to God, but he's also, something else is happening here. Melchizedek may not even be aware of this, Listen to the language that he uses. And in that language, you need to hear covenant, God's covenant wording. You need to hear about God's commitment, his commitment to Abram, even in this blessing that Melchizedek gives. Remember the initial covenant commitment language that God made to Abram in Genesis 12. And you hear the same words, the same concepts. Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3. God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just to review lightly, in in that covenant to Abram, God committed himself to Abram to bless Abram, to make Abram's name great, to defeat Abram's enemies, and to bless all of the other peoples through Abram. And isn't that what you see in this account with Melchizedek and, and Lot and these nine kings? Isn't that what you see? You see that God blesses Abram. That's even in the blessing of Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abram. He says, "Bless, blessed be Abram. And, and And he enters into this favored relationship. So God blesses Abram. God also, in this whole account, in this chapter, God makes Abram's name great. Now, because of this rescue operation, all nine kings from other kingdoms, all nine kings now respect and honor Abram. So he blesses Abram, he makes Abram's name great, and God defeats Abram's enemies. Abram prevails against Chedorlaomer and the other four kings against the five kings of the east. And do you see how God through Abram blesses all the other nations? How are the other nations blessed by Abram? Well, he rescued Lot, but he also rescued the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse sixteen: He rescued all the peoples of the king of Sodom. You see here. You see here why Abram's rescue operation succeeded. It wasn't because of his paramilitary army and because of their skill. It was because God was faithfully fulfilling his commitment to Abram. Melchizedek notes this in in verse 20. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so when you realize this as a believer, as as a believer who has received a commitment from God, you believers, this keeps you from, from being puffed up Whatever your success in ministry, whatever your success in relationships, whatever your success with money, it's because God is gracious. It's because salvation is of the Lord, not of you. What do you have that was not given to you by him? It keeps you from being puffed up, but it also keeps you from despair, and it keeps you from fear. Because it doesn't matter if your life is falling apart. It doesn't matter if you lack weapons and you lack people. If five kings have ruined your life if the other side has superior legal representation, none of that matters because salvation is of the Lord, not a guy with guns. And so we see that Abram uh, recognizes that God is the one who gets credit for the success. But secondly, we see this. We see Abram submits himself to King Melchizedek. Abram submits himself to King Melchizedek. King Melchizedek is the greater party here. And that's striking What happens here in this little transaction, it's almost as if Abram had been one of these these rebel kings and he had gone to battle and gone to war against Melchizedek and he had lost. He had been defeated by Melchizedek. Because what happens? When you lose, you then become a vassal. You become a tributary. You pay tribute to the victor king. And, And Abram, it says, for whatever reason, he tithed. He paid a tithe to Melchizedek, but he's not a loser. He he, he hasn't gone to war against Melchizedek and lost. What we find here is that he's gained in Melchizedek. He's gained a friend, and he's gained an ally. The credit is assigned, and and seemingly, Abram has become a vassal to Melchizedek. You, You see that in what happens with the other king, the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom, who lost, and who had Abram rescue and restore all of his stuff. The king of Sodom offers to Abram all the stuff. He says, just give me the people. You can have all the stuff because you're the victor in this. The loser becomes a vassal. What you see here is this, this, this principle that the greater the greater takes taxes from the lesser. And, and so that's what's going on under the, under the surface with Abram giving the tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the greater, Now, Abram and his allies drive out the five kings. In order to save his relative, Abram now probably has some new enemies. Those five kings that he grabbed the people back from and grabbed the stuff from, those five kings, they're new enemies probably for Abram. But Abram also has a new friend, a friend who's greater than him, this friend who comes to, to Abram with a feast. And, and maybe some of the dynamic for Abram and Melchizedek was something like this. There's, there's a somewhat well-known uh, writer um, and, and author named Jake. Uh, and Jake, is this, he's a young man. He writes articles. He's got this little thing going. He's got a few books. He makes these online posts. And Jake, especially when he was younger in his career, Jake had his heroes. Jake had these people that he was emulating Uh, Jake did not have much influence, but he did have a hero. He did have heroes. And one of his heroes noticed one of the articles that Jake had written. And his hero, who had books, conferences, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, a world of influence, one of Jake's heroes sent Jake an email and said to Jake, hey, I, I read your article. It was good. Here are some thoughts I had about it. Uh, good job, keep it up. And, and between Jake and his hero, a correspondence began and, and they became friends. And, and Jake and his hero would write. And, and one day, Jake was going to be in town and uh, the town where his hero lived. And they said, hey, can we get together? I'm in town. And the hero said, I'd love that. And they got together and they had a meal. And Jake got to meet his hero and his friend. What's going on here with Melchizedek and Abram? What's going on here? This is what we see with Melchizedek. We see a king who will rescue us from captivity. We see a king who will befriend us. We see a king who will be our priest and who will bless us. And for the, for the man Abram, and not just for Abraham, but for every person who shares the faith of Abram, this priest, this king, it's not Melchizedek, it's Jesus Christ. How is this? Jesus comes 2,000 years after Abram and Melchizedek. How is this Jesus? You know. Jesus is the king who rescues us, not from strong kings, but from the supreme prince of darkness. Christ delivered and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of marvelous light. And and Jesus is the king who is also a priest, who blesses us. And, And if you read... Psalm 110, like we just sang, and you read Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus Christ is this king of Salem, Melchizedek, and the priest of God Most High, who is a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. It's Jesus. And Jesus is not only the priest who's a king, not only the king who rescues us, Jesus is the greater king who comes to us and he befriends us. Melchizedek offered to Abram a friendship with a feast of bread and wine. Jesus offers us friendship not only with bread and wine but with the sacrifice of his blood and his body. It's a costly friendship. It's a a kinship. When Jesus heard about our fall into captivity his heart was moved for us. He did not remain in the ease and the safety of heaven. He rose up to rescue those whom he loved. Now, do you know what that means? For Abram, in his lifetime on earth, Abram only saw fragments, parts, little slices of God fulfilling his promises. And that was enough for him. It was not until the fullness of time that God faithfully and fully fulfilled his commitment. After Abram died, thousands of years Later, Christ our Melchizedek came. And the fulfillment, the fulfillment was greater than Abram dreamed. It wasn't just a son, it was God's son. It wasn't just land in the Middle East, it was heaven and a place that's been prepared forever. It wasn't just the plunder of ancient vassal kings, but it was eternal life, and an inheritance incorruptible and imperishable, which cannot be stolen. It was not just rescue of a nephew, but it was the salvation of the nations of the earth. And if you really get this, it affects your waiting, it affects your worrying, it affects your warring, and it affects your winning. It changes your waiting. It it affects your waiting. When you're just waiting, when is God gonna show up? Because you recall that when life is crumbling and you don't see rescue anywhere on the horizon, You can wait, and you can wait, but without cynicism. You don't despair. Because in the fullness of time, God sent our rescuer, Jesus. It also changes your worrying. You remember, you're convinced that God faithfully fulfilled his promise to Abram, that God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. God will faithfully fulfill his promise to you to work good and not evil. It also changes your You're warring what you go to battle for over. Abram had sent out to rescue his lost loved one. And in doing that, in in rescuing Lot, Abram also, in grace, rescued the wicked people of Sodom. And so here's how it changes your warring. Are Are you reaching those who are lost and captive? Or do you remain sitting under your shady tree? Are you relieving suffering? Are are you addressing oppression and captivity? Are you working for the return of goods that were taken away? It changes your warring. Finally, it changes your winning. It changes your winning. Who gets the credit? In life's little successes and in life's great successes, who's really the great one who deserves the tenth of all that you have? And who's really the real hero of the story? For the believer, for you, Jesus is always the hero. And who's your friend? Who's your friend, believer? Jesus is your friend. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rose up. You did not delay and that you succeeded in rescuing us. We were lost, we were running from you, and we needed you to come after us. We thank you for setting us free and for for delivering us, for taking the penalty that we could never pay and for giving us life and friendship that we could never dare to ask for. Lord, we pray that your love, your goodness, the sweetness of your friendship would be, be full for us today and this week, and for those who do not know you, for those who are strangers to this Jesus, our Melchizedek. Would you come to them today? Would you reveal yourself? Would you come and rescue them as well? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.